Hey everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. I'm James and back with me today I have Henry, my co-host, and we have a special guest with us today, Professor Andrew Farmery. He is head of the Nuffield Department of Anaesthetics at the University of Oxford, where he holds a full professorship and is the Sir Samuel Scott of Hughes Fellow and Tutor in Medicine at Wadham College, Oxford. Andrew also has a research group that works in biomedical engineering, developing novel intravascular sensors and analytical techniques to detect and monitor disordered physiology of respiratory and cardiovascular systems in the critically ill. And that is funded by the Wellcome Trust, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council and the NIHR. Andrew was also part of the team who designed Oxvent, for those of you that remember that, an award-winning, rapidly deployable and scalable, low-cost mechanical ventilator specifically designed for COVID-19. What an introduction that is, Andrew. We're sort of <laughs> we're not yes. we're not worthy, honestly. Uh, <laughs> delighted for you to be joining well, us. It's today. very kind of you to yes, thank you. Thank you. How how are you doing, Andrew? How's your week been? Yes. Um, fine. We're at, uh, Oxford term has started. Uh, we're in the second week of term, so it always gets a bit crazy about this time of year. Uh, mm. But it'll settle down midterm. So I'm sort of juggling teaching undergraduate medicine, trying to run my research group, uh, and do some clinical practice as well. So I kind of juggle all those three and end up doing most of them badly. But um, <laughs> one day I will try and do Somehow one of them well. Somehow I don't believe you. <laughs> Somehow I don't believe you. A very talented man, clearly. Before we get going, uh, since we have you here, Oxvent, what an incredible innovation and initiative that was at an incredibly, well, turbulent, uh, mm. all sorts of different time, of times yeah, yeah. that was. Um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about that before we kick into the stories for this week? Yes. Um uh, it really, the idea, uh, I mean, the government put out a call, the UK ventilator challenge for people to sort of come up with designing a ventilator. Slightly weird thing. Why would you do that? Why, If you were a government, why wouldn't you just go and find the experts and say, make us one rather than mm. have some sort of competition? Very weird. But anyway, a PhD student of ours um, said, should we be doing something to this? And I said, well, no, it'd be impossible. You know, we've got two weeks to design and make something and all of the supply chains are completely strangled. You wouldn't be able to you know design and test anything so no anyway he was very persistent and we sat down that day and sort of tried to design something that we could feasibly build something like 20,000 of in two weeks which mm. is what the brief was knowing that there was just nothing on the shelves you couldn't buy simple things like valves or solenoids or any you know things that ventilators are made out of so we had to design it out of things that ventilators aren't made out of mm. so that because <laughs> everybody was trying to build ventilators all over the world so we were trying to build things out of components that were available in the in the sort of supply chain for the NHS but were to actually ventilate the parts so we had to kind of repurpose them and it had to be kind of simple it had to be unbreakable it had to you know not consume much oxygen or resources and all sorts of things like that so we uh, drafted it pitched it to the cabinet and a week later the cabinet gave us seven million 
quid Cabinet Office, and we partnered with Smith and uh, nephew in mm. Hull uh, to go and take our prototype and then uh, upscale it and, and design it slightly differently so we could rapidly produce it on a production line. And uh, there was a lot of frenetic activity up there in Hull uh, trying to build this thing and make it work and get it tested. Um, and we did that. Um, I mean, it actually then, of course, wasn't needed. The prediction that we would need 20,000 ventilators in two weeks turned out mercifully uh, not to, to be true. Uh, so um, in the end, we ended up uh, giving effectively these ventilators away to places like Mexico and Brazil and wow. Bangladesh and what have you. And we've since slight designed better ventilators because we've had time to do that <laughs> now uh, that's still cheap under a thousand dollars uh rapidly manufacturable wow. has very few moving parts almost no moving parts actually so nothing to break nothing to go wrong and so we're in the process of sort of we've got a not-for-profit social enterprise company that uh, develops the this new uh, oxvent design which is designed really for low and middle income countries for non not necessarily pandemic use but uh, just for general use in intensive care or in operating theaters so anyway so some good came out of wow. the, the the story, uh, although we never used the original ones <laughs> in anger. Luckily, in this country, well, absolutely. But clearly, making incredible impact globally, and must be nice that you know the effort was not in vain, right? And clearly, mm, yeah, to yeah. to use those in low income countries, you must now be looking at that going like you know time well spent and actually money well yeah. spent, and must be must be very rewarding. Henry, how's your week been? Any made any? Uh, solutions to global pandemics or manufactured any <laughs> any uh, medical devices it's funny you should say that actually. Uh, no of course i haven't i've just been doing my regular single job rather than the three that andrew has uh, saving lives uh, but so yeah i'm i can't even complain about anything i've done nothing compared to you <laughs> so yeah all right let's talk about some health tech Story number one this week. So Mid and South Essex ICS have created a single waiting list for all elective cases. So they, I believe, they have merged data, they've merged these lists, they're prioritising patients differently. Henry, tell us what's going on in this one. Yeah, I love this one. I've actually had the chance to work with Mid and South Essex Trust in the past, and they've always been very, very ahead of the game in terms of tech so they have incredible like access to the data that all of the clinicians are producing and a great system i think pa built them um, that allows them to sort of amalgamate all of that and see it all in one place and they've raised the bar again with just to me is a really simple solution right you should be able to look at all of your elective stuff in the same place it's a very complex problem but they seem to have come up with a really really good way of doing it um there's a video on the link through to it which kind of is a there's videos that have the music in the background of like the pride of britain awards that are designed (laughs) to make you feel a little bit emotive about what is essentially amalgamated data but they've done it within source and it appears that they're confident that this will allow them to get through their backlog a lot quicker so it looks like a really good idea and the actual case study video in itself is worth watching because it's not a commercial kind of it's not a commercial video it's not trying to sell you in source it's actually just an explanation of how they've done what they've done so kudos to mid and south essex well i, I was going to just chip in with this because i think kudos of course to, to mid and south essex but i think this is rolled out in a number of different uh mini regions as well certainly in oxford we have something called bob 
ICS, which I guess is the equivalent to this, which is Berkshire, Oxfordshire, Buckinghamshire. So three different health authorities with their own satellite hospitals doing the same sort of thing. So I wonder if this is a national thing and, uh, and not just localised to, to, to Essex. And if it is, then it's you know, it really is a great step forward because waiting lists for long waiters in uh, small siloed hospitals are not going to be as dealt with as well as they would be if you amalgamated all of those resources and the information. When I first thought of this, I thought, well, how on earth does that alter waiting lists? It doesn't seem to make sense. You know, all three of these hospitals in in these clusters will have long waiting lists. So simply merging them isn't going to make them go away. So I thought, well, how does this work? And then it dawned on me eventually when I was looked into it is that the problem is that you, you the the waiting lists are very different. They're the same length, but they're very different kinds of patients in these different regions. Some will have a huge proportion of very, very long waiters over 104 weeks, and some will have sort of mostly mid waiters, and some will have waiters that haven't been waiting that long. And so the idea is you don't actually make the waiting list any shorter, but what you do is you can then promote long waiters from one region into a region where they don't have that many long waiters, they've got sort of short or intermediate waiters. So you just rebalance the sort of distribution of waiting time within a waiting list, and then you can juggle that uh, and use the resources more efficiently. So great idea. But of course, the barriers to that are how on earth do you then link in this patient's pre-op assessment, which is in hospital A, and is going to have his blood test done in hospital B and might have his operation there too. You know, how do we access all that information? And uh, as you know, electronic health records are, are a little bit clunky in the NHS. I suspect probably done at a time when they were choosing a cheapest, you know, provider. Um, can I say that? Uh, yes, <laughs> you, can on here. you can say whatever you like on here. Uh, they're clunky and they don't, and they're just not joined up. So, you know, Hospital A will have got a deal on one particular system and Hospital B on another system and they will talk to each other. So this great idea of sharing waiting lists and realigning the sort of makeup within a waiting list uh, falls apart if you then can't actually successfully trade patients, which is what you're doing. But opening up a system that will allow you to, from, you know, from Berkshire to look at a, uh, an Oxford or a Buckinghamshire patient's sort of health record pre-assessments, what's the scanning? Can we get the CT images downloaded and up onto our PACS system in the operating theatre? And once that can happen, then, of course, everything can happen. But that's the barrier. Um, and so I look forward to seeing uh, that uh, implemented. We've talked about this this as a barrier quite a few times with various different systems. As someone who's on the ground kind of looking at, at EPRs, electronic patient records, day to day, do you think there's an obvious solution? You all have seen the, the National Programme for IT in the early 2000s mm. and the, the issues that came out of that. Do you think that centralisation of the systems is the answer or do you think a robust framework that ensures that all systems talk to one another, like the data standards they've put up? Yeah, I, I, it's a nice idea to have a central um, sort of thing and a central sort of processor and repository and then every hospital is a sort of satellite to this big hub nice idea but it's fraught with all sorts of problems you know if that goes down if that's a center of cyber attack all of those things um i think really we do have to have it the data stored in-house for all sorts of reasons you know, not just data security but just for general sort of practicality uh, but the platforms have to be 
you know, look at your PC, you're either running in Windows or you're running in, you know, a sort of an Apple Linux sort of framework. And there aren't 24 different ones that are, don't talk to each other. So, you know, you, you need compatible systems. And, and you know, the, the market should dictate that that happens rather than just allowing a kind of free reign or free run as, as we've had now. And there we go. We've maintained our 100% record on this podcast of... Uh raising interoperability as the big mm. problem to solve. Mm. It just never fails to come. Mm. It seems like whenever we delve into these problems, all roads lead to this at some point. All mm. right, let's move on to story number two. Right, story number two this week. Study finds patients that are immersed in VR could need less anesthetic during surgery. Andrew, no better person really to have on the podcast than you today, a professor of anesthesiology or anesthetics, depending on which side of the pond you're on. Talk to us about what's going on here. Well, this story jumped out because, you know, it's right in the middle of my patch and I thought that's interesting. And I actually dug up the original paper. Uh, It's published from basically one of the Harvard hospitals, Beth. Uh, Israel Deaconess Hospital in, in in Harvard. On the face of it, it sounds like a great thing, but actually, when you dig down, the science isn't really great, and it it's a good example of how kind of not to do research. So, uh, but let's just talk about the story. <laughs> the story is uh, a group of patients go in to have some surgery, and they're having hand surgery. And most hand surgery, or a lot of hand surgery, is done under local anaesthetic. So you will put a, a needle into somewhere in the armpit or the neck where, where, where the nerves come out of the spinal cord and go down the arm, and then you can zap them with local anaesthetic and the whole arm goes numb. And it's a, it's a miracle. It's wonderful. Look, you've got a numb arm and you can do an operation. Um, and you can just do an operation like that. You don't actually need to give a general anaesthetic or any sedation at all. But a lot of patients are a bit anxious and, you know, you might want to, to, to give them some sedation just to chill them out a bit. If they're a really interesting character, like they're, a, I don't know, a spitfire pilot in the Second World War or something, and you wanted to have a nice conversation with them, you perhaps wouldn't give them sedation because you'd want to and chat to them. If they were a bit dull, like an investment banker or something, you'd give them lots of <laughs> sedation because you wouldn't want to talk to them. And so it's all a bit, you know, what, what, what suits the doctor, what suits the patient, that's fine. But in this study... Patients were randomised to either um, having some sedation that they asked for, you know, can I have a bit more, please, that sort of thing, or the, the, the anaesthetist could themselves decide that this patient might need some more. I'm not quite sure what, what this was based on, what prompted the anaesthetist to, to decide to give them some more, but either the, the, the patient could ask for it or the anaesthetist would just give it off their own back. That was one group. And the other group uh, had an immersive experience in VR with a kind of headset on and some um, nice sort of relaxing, you know, visuals and sound, and it all sounds marvellous. And lo and behold, those patients required, requested or were given less sedative during the case well of course because they were so sort of you know wrapped up watching a video or listening to music that they never really got round to asking for any and of course the anesthetists perhaps didn't want to give them any either because they were happily engaged with something else so I'm not really sure what this study tells us. Of course, those patients received less sedative because they would have asked for less. And and the ones who were sitting there bored, just sort of looking, staring at the ceiling, would perhaps ask for some sedation just because 
it was available and why not? Um, so uh, that's not to say that, you know, distracting patients in theatre is a good thing. Of course it is. You can do it through talking to them, you know, playing music or whatever. Um, so I'm not really sure the VR is anything unique here. And it certainly isn't really responsible for a difference, a statistical or a significant or a real difference in the amount of sedative given to these patients. Um, because they, it wasn't really controlled properly. It was just sort of dished out without any particular uh, sort of framework. Interestingly, the ones who had the VR headsets who received less sedative had to have their nerve block, their local anaesthetic nerve block, topped up more often during the surgery. What that means is nerve blocks are sometimes not 100% effective. And there'll be a little patch that's missing. If you give patients lots of sedation, they won't remember or care. Whereas the ones who aren't receiving a lot of sedation because they're watching a VR headset actually go, ow, that hurt <laughs> more often. And so they have to top it up more. So the whole study is a bit of a joke, um, um, <laughs> but it's fun. <laughs> it is. There's a, there's, a, there's, a co- there's a couple of interesting things this, this raises, right? And I think the, the, first, the first one, uh, I think, is evidence generation in health tech. Let's just talk about that more broadly, because mm. I think for a lot of new technologies, it is difficult to generate evidence. It just, it just mm. is. You're, you're not going to do yes. this study and wholly deprive someone of local or certainly not general anesthesia and adjust their levels and all the rest of it. And so evidence generation is tough at the best of times, but yes. it's not helped by examples that are perhaps so easy to to poke holes in let's just say or to, to analyze you're absolutely right and and actually it's a good it's it's good that we are discussing this story because it's brought this up and a lot of my research is is uh, building uh, sort of monitoring devices uh, mm. that measure um, the way that the ventilation is disordered in the lung or blood flow is disordered a, a, a relative to ventilation in the lung in critically ill patients in ITU whose mortality is very high and they're on mechanical ventilators and mechanical ventilators damage them even more. Obviously got no choice but to use them but they're, they're, they're quite harmful devices and so what I part of my research is trying to say, can I make some measurements with these devices that I have invented uh, that will materially make a difference, will allow a clinician to to ventilate this patient in a a different way that might be less harmful. And the the evidence and the physiology tells us that if we do it in this way, it's, it's going to be less harmful. Now, it's almost impossible to prove that because it's a very noisy picture on ITU that uh, the the patients are very sick, their mortality is very high anyway. Um, You cannot realistically do a clinical trial of umpteen thousand, the many thousands you would need to get the signal out of the noise. You simply cannot do it ethically or financially um, to say this actually makes a material difference to mortality. The best we can do is to choose a proxy. So rather than looking at mortality, we'll say this thing, this intervention has allowed us to use less pressure in the ventilator or something like that, or has allowed us to use a a lower concentration of oxygen, or you choose some sort of proxy measure, but it's not a, you know, it's not a hard measure of efficacy. And it's not any proof that you are actually saving any lives or doing anything. Common sense tells you that it probably does. Um, And so clinicians are often sort of happy with that. But investors 
and you know venture capital people are not really happy with that they'll say why would i invest in this <laughs> uh, unless i've seen a clinical trial of mm. 10,000 people and there's you know clear evidence Absolutely. and you just simply can't do it and the other one other than evidence as well is clearly there are people who love vr and there are people who love healthcare and where those are the same person i feel like vr is in terms of use cases in healthcare there there is an excitement to merge those two things i don't mm. feel they are attracted to each other like a magnet per se i don't mm. feel that the use cases for vr are leaping out at us in healthcare no. it feels like you know this this study being an example of yes okay we know that distraction will reduce mm. the requirement for anesthesia in in a few different ways I think that's an easier one to say VR and perhaps, you know, in pediatrics and things where it might be a bit more useful that mm. we can we can go down that that road. And there are companies like Proxmi that I think we might come to a bit later when we talk about AR. You know, there, there are companies that are, that are doing yeah. bits and bobs in, in this, but I don't know. I'm not a VR evangelist myself. I'm interested mm. in it. I might get the new quest and 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 mm. try and develop a love for it, perhaps. But again, it feels like mm. I'm Feels like I'm being a tryhard in VR and health tech. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not loving those two things yet. Well, perhaps we'll come on to this because then one of the next stories is about augmented reality, and I think that's a different game, and I mm. think that has a, 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 a much you know more assured mm. place in healthcare. But VR, you're right. There are evangelists for it who, who want to find a use for it, no matter what. And I'm going to find a use for this. We've been using it in our department for teaching medical students sort of practical nice, yes. skills, education. Yes, um, that's good. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced yet it's better than actually sitting them down, you know, in an operating theatre or in a, in a wet lab, you know, uh, um, do, you know, practising. I'm not sure. What about scale, though, for education? Is, is scale a useful use case there in terms of the one-to-many? In what? In terms of the number of people you can get through the, the training? That, I guess, and yeah. access. In terms of improving access, and again, if you think about low income and think of low income, you're not going to stick a headset on them. But there's yes, that, that's true. I mean, you know, skills labs are expensive, and there aren't that many of them. Mm. Uh, I think they're pretty good, um, and this uh, VR may be a, a, you know a, a cheaper way of doing that. But I think it is a bit limited. You know, yeah, it's nice hard, and people like it because it's because it's a new thing. But actually, you know, if you're learning a surgical skill or a clinical skill there is no substitute to actually <laughs> doing it. Um, but it certainly is a preliminary uh, introductory thing before you move into the skills lab of the operating theatre, then VR, yeah, it does have a role. So story number three this week, the future of augmented reality in four charts. So Henry, tell us about what's going on here. Uh, it's another sifted piece. So they're talking about AR in various different areas, but it stuck out to me because they talk about the potential value of the market for VR in um, AR and VR in healthcare, which they've predicted is about $19.6 billion by 2030. They don't actually say where they got that figure from. And we'll all remember when there was the article that said that um, blockchain in health tech would be worth $100 billion by 2025. <laughs> so we'll take the, figure with a, take the figure with a pinch of salt. But... It's a really interesting look at it. And it's a really it's a really beautifully put together article as well. Like in terms of the four charts they've put together, I highly recommend digging into it. It was that figure of 
19.6 billion that I wanted to discuss, but also look at companies like Proximy, who they've interviewed here, Richard Carter, who's the VP of engineering at Proximy, um, which Andrew may well know more about than I do, but they use augmented reality to help surgeons uh, advise remotely on operations in areas with poor connectivity. And they're using AR rather than just VR, which I think they're currently using, um, to enable them to send more data because it actually requires significantly less bandwidth to send that data than it does to to have full VR. So that's a fascinating look at how you can use that bit of technology to help areas which don't have the connectivity that you know we might be privileged to have in cities or in more developed countries so yeah yeah i can we don't really have much of it or i i personally have not experienced any of it in the health in the in the sort of hospital setting that i work in uh, but i can see it really does have a, a a role and i think it will take off at the moment we are you know if you're if you're doing anything practical you are you know you've got your hands in in a wound you're looking at the ct scan that's over up on a big screen the other end of the thing you're then thinking asking the the rep who's made an implant or something who's representing the company and you're saying oh um can you just how does this fit on here and what sort of you know i know that sounds shocking to most people but it's not actually shocking it's just that you use lots of very technical uh, implants and things and the best people to know how to you know set it up and fit it all in is the actual the, the company rep that makes it so they're in the operating chair so there's all sorts of information going into the the surgeon or a gynecologist or oncologist or anaesthetist or whatever it is they're doing just having that merged with some sort of screen or spectacle or uh, so you see what you should be doing you know you're putting a central just take a simple example you're you're trying to put a a a catheter in a big vein for some chemotherapy or something traditionally you know we would use some ultrasound to find where the vein was and we'd put a wire into it but to actually have the ultrasound image rather than over there have the ultrasound image here merged with the actual reality of what I'm doing would be an enormous asset. And also even having, you know, I'm an anaesthetist and I'm uh, in theatre, I'm looking at all sorts of information that's on a screen over there, pulse, blood pressure, oxygen levels, pressures, all that sort of stuff. But the patient's over there. And actually I'm also looking at the chest rising and falling and I'm looking at the blood spurting out of the wound. Um, It would be actually quite good that I can actually look at the patient and actually I've got all that information merged as well in some sort of screen or Google glasses type thing. So I, I see that could really take off and make life a lot easier and, and make the job safer, I guess. Yeah, it's very practical, that, isn't it? it, it there's a very mm. practical value to that because even as you've just said, having two things that you need at the same time on opposite ends of the room because that's just where the equipment is clearly creates a gap where the quality of patient care can be improved. And as you say, if you're trying to look and observe the surgical field whilst having an appreciation for their SATs and their BP and their heart rate and trying to figure out what that metaraminol has just done and effort, like having all of that in the same place, you're far more practically able to do your job to a higher standard. And I think that's one thing and one element actually, that when we talk about be it augmented reality or any form of health tech, I think too often we we default to where does it save money? And I understand that. And where does it make money? And how can we afford Like, I get that money-saving argument. I always get that argument. It's completely how things are going to get procured and through finance directors and all the rest of it. I get it. However, 
I, I really want for our sector to have more of a conversation about how much a health tech device or system or whatever improves the quality of care. Because actually, I think there's a more nuanced conversation about the improvement of care quality and what money is saved down the line beyond that. And I, th- I, th- I just think that we're, we're too, we're, I just feel like we're too quick and one dimensional in that argument with health tech and, and devices of just, of just the financial argument. I mean, did, just use this as an example. You're, you're a youngster, so you will, will not remember the days when you put a central line in without using an ultrasound to, to get the image you, you want to. In my day, you did it by trying, you know, remembering the anatomy as best you could. And how uh, often and do you end up it. in the carotid artery? <laughs> well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to say. <laughs> but, but, but my point is, at the time when ultrasound was being introduced and there were some pioneers saying, we must use the ultrasound device so in real time you can image this big vessel you're shoving a needle into Mm. a lot of people went no we don't need that no that's just a waste of money and you know that's just frivolous and that's just you wanting a gadget Uh, but of course now Mm. nobody would dream of going anywhere near it without the ultrasound because it would be silly Uh, and of course we've seen that the the complication rate has come down dramatically since we've started using ultrasound. So, you know, extrapolate that now tenfold into the next era, which is, you know, augmented reality and new health tech. And the same principle applies. You don't see the benefits until you've been doing it. And you can't necessarily prove it because you'll never give a trial big enough to prove it. Absolutely. It's the proof bit. It's the the proof's the biggest bit as well. You have to fundamentally change how the NHS procures stuff. Every tender I've ever done has been... 60 40 weighted in terms of 40 percent finance 60 percent functionality and if you can't prove the roi of something because as, as andrew mm-hmm. says you can't get the trial numbers then so you have to start at that level you have to say we're not looking at how we purchase stuff right yeah and i wonder where i wonder where that common sense argument line actually comes in and, and this is the chat this is a challenge as we talked about with evidence as well is where where is common sense just enough before we actually need evidence and be it through mm. proxies or, or others, because I mean, there's a company that we do work with, Hollow Care, who are in the augmented reality space for surgical planning, and they can visualize organs and pathology within those organs mm. before the surgeons go in and operate. But actually, for the whole MDT to plan that care, mm. and again, it's about how many steps are you saving by just giving everyone that singular view to look at, to look out of. Um, mm. rather than everybody's interpretation of a CT and every, you know, creeping in. It's, it's like, how much does that actually help you? Because everybody's on the same page in the same location, even if they are remote and virtual and all over the world, they can be in the same location, visualizing the same organ and then come up with the same plan and all the efficiencies created out of that. And so it, it is interesting to me, like where where the line between common sense and evidence is and actually what what is the level of evidence required and as we said, to proof and all the rest of it. But mm. yeah. I like VR. I like AR. I think it's cool tech. I yeah. just want to find these, <laughs> these and yes. others. Well, I, you know, AR is is merging re- reality because we live in a real world. Mm. It's a real world, and we've got real patients and real problems in front of us. So we need, re- you know, real 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 reality, uh, mm. and, but certainly augmented. Is, I think that's where it is. Virtual reality is. I think it's great in the sort of entertainment space, mm. possibly a bit in the in education, but I don't see it really because the last thing you want to be as a doctor is disconnected anywhere else (laughs) around you yeah the very last thing absolutely right so 
our final story today. Let's go on to it. Right, story number four this week. Uh, this is definitely one that Henry's going to want to come in on because after two exuberant years, health innovation funding recalibrates to pre-pandemic levels. I feel like for the last sort of three or four weeks, we've just had the uh, the, the the doom and gloom, the scaremongers just saying that, you know, all the funding's down this year, down this quarter. And for a few weeks in a row, Henry has been on here saying, of course it is. It's just because that everybody was investing previously. But someone's done an analysis. I believe, who is it? Startup Health? Yeah, Startup Health have done a full analysis on this and come up with a relatively sensible conclusion looking at the headlines. So Henry, tell us all about this one. Yeah, I feel like for the last three weeks, I've not been I mean, on my soapbox. I've more like strapped myself to the roof of the soapbox <laughs> factory and just been like, this is this is not the right way of looking at this. Because as I said last week, of course, funding went up in 2021. And now we're seeing a recalibration. But if you look at the angle of attack of investment across like globally, it's not just the UK or the US, although this is a very US focused market. If you look at the angle of attack from about 2010, when health tech started to get quite a lot more funding than it had done for the first 10 years of the century to now, it's a straight line. It's a nice straight line. It's going up all the time. And then there's this huge spike. And it's just really nice that finally someone has written the article that that I think we threatened to write it last week and someone was like, well, <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want Henry writing that. So I'll jump in there. It's great. It's it's a very nice report. It's, it's again, like Startup Health put together a really nice looking pieces, similar to the Sifted one. Um, and it just goes through and it shows you the pattern over time. And that's what's important because I know that People who invest in health tech companies are not going to look at the one or two articles coming out being like everything is everything's underwater. Like none of the smart money investing in health tech is going to do that. Maybe some of the the dumb money might, but the volume of articles that were coming out in the, at the end of the last quarter was astounding. Like and from places that usually I think have very high levels of journalistic integrity. I'm not going to name drop them because I'd like to continue working with them, but. It's really nice to start Health to put something out there that is actually just a, everyone calm down. Here's a proper full-on analysis that says, this is what we should be expecting. This is not unusual. We've had a weird time, a great time, a phenomenal time, but this is normal and normal is good because there are lots of industries right now where even taking COVID out, investment levels are significantly down on pre-pandemic levels. It's almost so obvious that you know you're surprised that it that it hasn't been sort of discussed before. But you know there, there was an extraordinary time where not not just in in uh, uh, privately funded health tech, but you know government funded, NIHR funded, uh, research council funded research and promotion of health tech solutions to the COVID pandemic um, were unprecedented. And some of them actually were a waste of money, a waste of government money, because it was sort of frivolous, slightly pointless stuff. But, you know, you expect that. We were in a difficult time and we needed to do something. And it was not unreasonable that the government would spend money on it. And it's not, it's to be totally expected that the private sector, you know, would would grow in, in the health tech area related to COVID. And of course, you know, when the dust settles, we're back on that straight line curve, pretty much, you know, if you draw a ruler through it, uh, we've picked up pretty much on the same gradient, haven't we? 
and it will well, as, as much as anyone can predict, will continue probably on that gradient too. And it's quite reassuring, in fact. It's, 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 it's reassuring that it continues to grow. That's the word I would use, actually, reassuring, because uh, you, you see all this stuff and you have many interests in this area and all of a sudden you're thinking, oh my goodness, Like, is nobody ever going to get funded again? And then you look around and you look at the reality. Well, actually, of course they are. And of, and of course they continue to be. And as someone from Silicon Valley Bank said uh, the other week to me, the best businesses will always get investment. And so it will be fine. We are increasing as a sector. And as I said last week, you know, we're still only second to fintech. We're, you know, still up there. Don't want to race fintech again, Henry. Don't want to get your blood pressure up. Yeah, don't do that. Andrew's already attacked the investment bankers once on this, which I'm sure you were delighted oh, sorry. with. I should have used a different example. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. We joke on here. You're you're allowed to say it. Um Yeah. We just have this we have this monthly uh this monthly battle with fintech around our funding numbers um, and in health tech. And Henry particularly just gets a little bit insecure. He's married to someone in fintech. so uh, Yeah, it, it, we've beaten them twice. And those, I would argue, were the two <laughs> best months of my life because uh, I live a sad, sad existence. Oh, so that was the, the week's stories, everybody. If you want to grab any of the links, you can head to healthtechpigeon.com. Um, Andrew, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Before we let you go, I just want to ask you one thing because... You have a research group that works in the area of intravascular sensors. Now, obviously, with this being a health tech podcast, it would be remiss of me to let you go without having a bit of a discussion or giving you the chance to explain what an intravascular sensor is and what impact you're looking to make by doing research into them. Right. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, um, we have invented um, a very tiny fiber optic sensor. So it's a little plastic sensor, the sort of thing that brings broadband into your house. And we've got some clever chemistry on the tip of it. And we fire um, high energy blue light down it. And this uh, chemistry fluoresces. And if there's a lot of oxygen around, the fluorescence gets quenched. And we can, by making measurements that go back down the fiber, we can measure the uh, concentration of oxygen in the blood. Now you might say, what's the point of that? We've been doing that for years. Uh, we can implant this uh, tiny sensor in an artery in your wrist or in your groin if you're a sick patient. And the advantage of this device is that it measures it very rapidly. So very rapid changes in oxygen will be picked up. Whereas currently we just take a blood sample and that just gives you a number. Um, and what we've learned through our experiments in animals is that when you've got acute lung injury, when you're very sick on ITU, you, rather than having a single oxygen level all the time, the oxygen level rises and falls hugely um, with each breath. So sometimes on, when the ventilator puts a breath in, your oxygen can go through the roof. And then during expiration, it falls into your boots and it's rising and falling and rising. Well, we've never seen it before because we never had sensors that could measure it before. Um, and so that got us thinking, well, what does it mean? What's causing that? And what we think is causing that is that when you when you breathe out at the end of the breath, the lung is collapsed and becomes solid at the base of the lung because gravity is squashing it down and it's very inflamed and sticky. And then when the ventilator thumps some pressure in, it wrenches this collapsed bit of lung open again and fills it with air or oxygen. And so the power, so what we're seeing is a biomarker. This oxygen signal is a marker telling us that bad things are happening in the lung. The lung is being allowed to collapse to a solid lump and then is being wrenched open 
open violently in some cases by the ventilator. And this is the thing that is causing the lung injury that eventually, well, kills 50% of patients on ITU. So we're doing, we're doing a, a trial. We're just starting at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, uh, ITU. Uh, our work up until now has mainly been in animal models, but we're just doing our first in-man trials of this device in ITU to see whether or not uh, it can, A, replicate what we've seen in the lab, but B, is there something we can do with the ventilator that stops the lung behaving like this. And, and we can monitor it, of course, because uh, these large swings in oxygen uh, concentration should get, you know, shallower and shallower and, and, and be, you know, uh, much less variable. Uh, and so whether or not that makes any difference to mortality, as we discussed earlier, be very difficult to prove. But just for the physiological principle we're trying to establish, can we, it, does our sensor give us a biomarker of bad things happening in the lung and, and telling us that we're actually ventilating this patient badly and dangerously and we should change it in some way? One thing, what, I was actually just thinking, I was going to say it to Henry off air, but actually, I, I think if I'd have been taught by you, I'd have stayed in medicine because actually, I, I, I'm, I'm a genu- that's a genuine thing because I, I think I, I never found any role models within medicine that kind of merged my interests of the science, the technology, even the company building side of things and the mm. business side of things, as well as the medicine and the patient care. And I think I was always interested in all of those things equally. And I just think for, for the majority of, of medics that that get through it's just that the majority of their passion has to live in the medicine and the patient care mm. and i think mm. f- for those that do have equal and opposite interests often perceived as opposite interests you know in in business and growing companies and and all those different things even though they can obviously have impact which yeah. is how i've arrived at health tech i do genuinely think that if i'd known somebody with a career like yours that i would have perceived as a role model i might have stayed with the medicine a lot longer than i had but oh, um that's very nice to hear no, no, I, it's I, interesting that the true. NIHR it does now fund entrepreneur fellowships. Mm. Uh, it was, at one time, it was mainly you, you know, clinical science fellowships and this kind of thing. But now, entrepreneurship is something that the NHR has picked up on and is supporting people in sort of entrepreneur type research and you know uh, and, and and to practice that as their branch of medicine, if you like. Which I think um, is, good. I mean, so, that's great, mm, isn't it? Because I think that mm. combined with things like Tony Young's clinical entrepreneur program, all the accelerators that exist and all these and and increasingly the amount of data scientists and computer scientists that that go to medicine and become doctors and similarly the other way around doctors that then go and do data science computer science it's just that gone are the days where you know i would do a ward round and just see all of the problems you have these people on ward rounds now that have done those on those fellowships or have done other careers that can actually see solutions at the same time and the more that we can merge those worlds, the better, because for people like yourself that play in all those, those different camps, your appreciation of, of the science and the medicine combined with your appreciation of biomedical devices and your ability and engineering and all those things can lead to this impact that you are having. So I think it's uh it's a wonderful career that you've got. It's really, really impressive. And, and yeah, it's, it's wonderful to hear all the different things that you're doing. Thank you for, uh, for coming onto the podcast and telling us all about it. Well, it was great to talk to you and thank you for having me on. 